Well, good morning, Foothill. I'm Pastor Chris, and uh, we're going to be having a baptism service on November 1st. And if you want to be part of that, and let me just say, if, you've, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, I hope you will be. Um, I just look at that as one of those pivotal moments in my life where I took that step of obedience and I can look back, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know the day I was saved, but I absolutely remember the day that I, I, uh, I followed Jesus into the waters of baptism and what a day that was. And, and I want to encourage you that. So just take your connection card on the front. You'll see a box that says, I want to be, I want to know more information about baptism. Check that. You can, uh, you can um, drop it off at the info tent when you're done. If you want to do that or hand it to one of the ushers or one of us, that's fine. And somebody will get in touch with you and just answer whatever questions you have about how that works, okay? But man, this is going to be an awesome uh, Sunday, and we'd love to have you involved in that. And then uh, today is Compassion Sunday, and so you, you uh, may have seen the Compassion Experience. It's out back. And, uh, and it's an amazing thing. If you've not gone, gone through it, I would encourage you to do that. But more than that, here's the one thing I want you to do today, and that is as you leave here, I want you to stop by the Compassion booth and sponsor a child. Uh, my family and I have been sponsoring a little girl named Sylvia down in Mexico for the last about three years or so, and what a joy it's been uh, to communicate with her and her to write to us and us write to her and give her, you know, Christmas gifts and all that, but to hear about her growth. And I'm not just talking about she's growing in stature. Um, I mean, she's growing intellectually because she's in school, but she's growing spiritually. And here's what I love about compassion. Compassion does everything through the local church. And I love the local church, and I think the local church is the hope of the world. And so this is not just some parachurch ministry. This is actually them saying, we're going to partner with, we won't even start a ministry in an area until we have a church that's going to take this on. And so Sylvia is not just getting food and an education. She's becoming part of a church, and her family's getting, you know, told about the gospel. And so she's growing spiritually, and I love that. And I wouldn't want to invest in this other otherwise. And so it's about $38 a month. And I mean, I think most of us, that's, that's like a dollar a day, a dollar ten a day or something like that. And, and most of us can afford that. And I would just encourage you, man, make that part of your budget. Do that. You can actually make a difference in somebody's life. And so on the way out, you'll see the tent over there, and it's got pictures. You go on there. You can go on to this website here, compassion.com forward slash Foothill Church, and, and do it there as well. But we'd really love to see as many people as possible sponsoring a child today, okay? Uh, do that on your way out today. All right, well, we are going to start a new series today. We're calling Keep Christianity Weird on the Sermon on the Mount. And so grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We will get there in a moment. But uh, let me, I, I need to give you some background and kind of help us uh, get a feel for what's happening here. So uh, I don't know how many of you have seen Shrek, uh, the, the, the movie. Uh, maybe a little few, uh, you know, a lesser number have seen Shrek. The musical. Anybody seen Shrek the musical? So, so some of you, it's okay if you haven't. Um, uh, it was a Broadway sensation. It was there? I mean, made tens of millions of dollars. And you know, the gist of the story is it's the same as the movie, right? It's this ogre who finds his princess, and it's Fiona, and she turns out to also be an ogre. And also about these outcasts that uh, save the kingdom of Duloc from the evil lord Farquaad. Okay, so it's this funny, interesting, and, and, and yet not very subtle. So, so underlying this, this funny musical is this, is this theme that basically says, hey, be yourself. Don't ever change. You're unique, and don't let anybody tell you any differently. 
So at one point, they sing this song that gets very catchy called Freak Flag. Some of you have seen the musical, you know what I'm talking about, where Pinocchio, uh, one of the outcasts of the kingdom, uh, begins a song, and I want to make sure I get it right. So here's what he says, this, this song. I'll just read you some, some of the lyrics from the song. It says, it's time to stop the hiding. It's time to stand up tall. Say, hey, world, I'm different, and here I am, splinters and all. And they go into the chorus, let your freak flag wave, let your freak flag fly, never take it down, wave it way up high. And then they tell you later why you should do that. And so they all sing, we've got magic, we've got power. Who are they to say we're wrong? All the things that make us special are the things that make us strong. Now, uh, just so you know, I don't think that was written for Christians. I don't think they had any intention of supporting Christianity in those lyrics, okay? But if all truth is God's truth, and there's some things in that that we can co-opt, and there's something they're saying in that that is actually, I think, very true, and is sort of this universal truth that what makes us special, what makes us unique is what makes us strong. So I, I, I don't know, but... Um, where you are on this, but, but Christians, we've lost the culture wars. <laughs> and, and, and I hate that we even call it that, right? Like we're warring against the culture, but, but we've lost whatever that is. We're not in the war anymore, and that is a lost war for us. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing because Christianity doesn't do very well. Christians don't do very well when we are the center of power. We don't do very well. I mean, history proves this over and over. When we are outcasts, when we are, when we are uh, special, when we're, there's something weird about us is when we are our strongest. I mean, so you go back to the Roman Empire when Christianity is just emerging and it's this persecuted sect. People didn't even know what to call it. They called it the way, and Antioch was the first place they ever called people Christians, and it was a pejorative term. Oh, you think you're little Christ, whatever he was. In Rome, we were called atheists because we only worshiped one God. They worshiped multiple gods. We were called cannibals because we ate and drank the blood and body of Christ. They thought literally instead of the Lord's Supper. We were outcasts. We were driven underground. There were all kinds of things. And, and Christianity flourished, absolutely flourished. It's flourishing today in China. It's flourishing in the Middle East. It's flourishing where Christians are put under pressure, but put them into power. Let Constantine see a vision in Rome that makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and things go really bad. We suddenly go, we don't have to try anymore. Our man is president. Congress represents our interest. We don't need to pray and seek God the way we used to. It just gets, it just gets really um, turned upside down. I don't think this is what God wants for us. We, we flourish when we're freaks, when we're weird when we're outcasts. See, I understand this. The United States is not a Christian nation. Well, that probably upsets some of you. I don't think we ever were. 
Now, I don't mean any disrespect by this. I understand. There were you know, pilgrims that came over that were escaping religious persecution, that kind of thing. And I've read all the First Amendment stuff when I was in law school and, and all the machinations of that. And, 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 and it's true that, that, that we were founded on principles of religious freedom. However, we were never a Christian nation. Now, I think we embraced Christian values genuinely. I think there was a, there was a sense that in the culture, Christianity had some values that were good for the culture. But I don't think we ever embraced the Christian gospel, a crucified Messiah. So, so look at Russell Moore, great book, by the way, called Onward. If you want to kind of wrestle through how should we Christians respond to the, the current cultural uh, milieu that we're in, then, then this is a great book. But he says this, that, that's why we used to be able to speak of God and country with great reception in almost any era of the nation's history, but would create cultural distance as soon as one mentioned Christ and Him crucified, right? God was always welcome as the deity whose job it was to bless America. The God who must be approached to the blood of Christ, however, was much more difficult to set to patriotic music or to amen in a prayer at the Rotary Club, Right? We love Christian values, but please don't talk to us about Christ and Him crucified. That's going too far. Now, is that a bad thing, that that is not us as a country, or, or that we're kind of coming out of this moment where it looks like we're not a Christian nation anymore, we've lost the culture wars? I don't think it's a bad thing at all. In fact, I think in some ways we're coming out of a captivity for far too long. I don't know about you. I grew up in the church, so this has been my whole life, and I, 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 I don't know how many times in my life I thought that America was God's chosen people, like that somehow my Bible was pointing to Americans. I mean, this is classic. Like, I, Michelle and I were, were members of a, of a church when I was in seminary, and some of you know, you know, some big churches, they have like fellowship halls, right? And you go to the fellowship hall, and that's where different fellowship happens, right? So around the perimeter of this fellowship hall, in big, big letters, Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. Who are my people? Oh, it must be us. We're American. And God has shed His grace on thee, and so somehow I'm at the center of the book. And so we normalize, we nominalize Christianity. Everybody was a Christian, but not anymore. Now, what's happening in America? Christianity, Christians, are becoming increasingly marginalized, outcasts, strangers, aliens, foreigners, exiles. And if you've read your Bible, those words ought to sound very familiar to you because the Bible says that's exactly what you are. 
That's exactly what I designed you to be. This, I mean, Jesus is going to say, look, people are going to hate you because they hate me because this is, I'm not of this world. There's a different world. Paul's going to say, our citizenship is in heaven. The writer of Hebrews is going to say, all these Christians, these great Christians of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 that were martyred or lived out these mighty lives of faith, he says, they were looking for another city whose builder and founder is God. I mean, this is not our home. We are strangers. We are exiles. And when we start to believe that this is our home and there's nothing different about us, then things go really bad. We're supposed to live like citizens of another world. So, so maybe, maybe what's happening in America is God saying, I want you to flourish again. I actually want you, I want you to set the world on fire again. And so to do that, I can't let you be the moral majority. I got to take you back to where you're outcasts again. And here's Russell Moore again. Look what he says. The shaking of American culture is no sign that God has given up on American Christianity. In fact, it may be a sign that God is rescuing American Christianity from itself. Maybe that's exactly what God is doing. So we look at America right now and we go, why, why are people not turning to the church? Why, why does the church seem to become more and more marginalized, less and less relevant in our world? I mean, wh- wh- why is this happening? Because like every generation, like, like every human being in history, people are out there going, I'm trying to find something. Everybody, everybody's searching for happiness. Everybody's searching for joy. Everybody's searching for peace, meaning, purpose, all of these things. And so they might start to turn in toward the church and go, maybe, but they look in and go, wait a second. They are chasing it in exactly the same way I am. They are simply a religious version of the secular culture. And when we take and say, we just want to co-opt the secular culture and just turn it religious, it turns it lame every time. So I want you to be, people are turning and going, does the church embody all my hopes and dreams? No, what I look is I I look and I see they value the same things the world values. They love the same things they're chasing happiness the same way the church, the, the people in the world are chasing happiness. I don't see any different. Why would I turn in there to just add religion? That's awful. I don't want to do religion and still do what I'm doing. I'm, I'm much happier without it. See, see, so we are merely religious versions of our secular counterparts. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, no comment could be more hurtful to a Christian than the words, but you are no different than anyone else. You know what God has always been looking for? Always wanted? He's wanted weird people. Now, let me explain this. Like, this is actually a major theme in Scripture, believe it or not. Now, when I say weird, like, I don't mean nose-picking, scab-eating weirdos, right? I mean, like, 
there's something different about this group. So when you open up your Bibles, you start reading from Genesis to Revelation, God goes, I'm going to call people out of the world to be different. And I, I'm going to set you apart and, and I'm going to make you holy. And you understand, holiness, church, does not mean we live perfect lives, we're all goody two-shoes, we never sin. That is not holiness. Holiness literally just means to set apart. To make something holy means to set it apart for God for a purpose. Okay, because I want you to be different. So he takes, he takes Israel out of Egypt and in Leviticus chapter 20, he, he, says, he says this to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which you're going, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Leave it up there just for a second. Look at the first phrase and the last phrase. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the Lord your God. You are my people. And what I want you to be is different. The reason I'm going to ask you to take a Sabbath is because everybody in the world is going to look at Christians, look at my people taking a Sabbath. Are you kidding me? There's a storm coming and you're not going to harvest today? No. Why? Because we trust in God. We're different. I mean, over and over and over again. But they keep forgetting. They keep forgetting we're supposed to be different. So Psalm 106 says this about the people of God. They mixed with the nations, learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They just started doing what they did. They forgot. They said, we don't want to be different. We, we want to be just like the nations around us. We want to we do what they do. Give us a king just like the other nations. God's going, I want you to be different to the point they even get to a place in Ezekiel where they want to worship differently. Look what, look what Ezekiel says. Let us be like the nations and worship wooden stone. We want to value, pursue, find our happiness in all the things that every other nation did. This is what we're going after. Th this is the way to joy. This is the way to happiness. This is the way to wealth. This is the way to prosperity. This is the way to all the things we want. So we'll worship. We're not talking about worship wars like should we have, should we have you know, uh, pianos and pipe organs versus drums and guitars. This is like the world looks in and says, Christians are just chasing down the very same dreams and hopes and pursuits of joy that the world is, and there's no difference. And God says, I want you to be different. So, so what does all this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Everything. Everything. And you're going to hear in the next several months, a very weird sermon. You're, you're going to listen in as Jesus begins to unpack. See, you can't understand the Sermon on the Mount until you understand this background. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. And I could go into all kinds of interesting like parallels between, you know, God gives the law to Moses who then gives it to the 12 tribes of Israel up on a mountain. Jesus is going to go up on a mountain with 12 men representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's going to give them the new law. He's going to unpack some things for them. 
He's saying, we're going to start over, and I'm going to make sure you understand what that whole Old Testament was about. I want you to see, I want you to be different. I want there to be something unique. And, and he comes on the scene, and before he ever gets to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, repent, right? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And what is, what is he saying there? The kingdom of heaven, by the way, you're going to see in Matthew, Matthew will never use the words kingdom of God. And the reason he won't do that is because he's writing mostly to Jews, and Jews to this day will not say the word God. They'll use some other name. And so he calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, this rule of God. He's saying, he's saying repent, turn around change your mind completely. See things differently. Let it so impact you that you actually live differently. I mean, Jesus is going to stand up and basically say, I'm going to give you the sermon. I'm going to show you what life looks like under the gracious rule of God. When you have submitted your life to God and you come under His rule, I'm going to show you what life looks like there. And the whole world, disciples, are going to try to tell you how to chase happiness. They're going to say happiness is in fame, it's in wealth, it's in power, it's in all these things. And Jesus, the first words out of his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount are blessed, happy. This is the blessed life. And it is so weird. What does life look like under the gracious rule of God? It looks different. It looks weird. It looks very strange to a watching world. And this is Jesus' whole point. I mean, in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, which, which some, some people think is the key verse of the entire sermon, don't be like them. D- don't be like the surrounding nations. Don't do that. Everything about you should be different. You should shine. You should be distinctive. There ought to be something winsomely wonderful. You ought to be weird for the glory of God. But you will not be that. You will not have that strength. What makes us special makes us strong. But if you want to eliminate the specialness, if you want to eliminate the differences, then you will never draw people to me. If you just want to be like the nations, if you want to have the same morals, if you want to have chased the same dreams, if you think you're going to find happiness in the same way, nobody will be drawn to Jesus. So he says, this is the way. This is the way, follow me. Christians are weird people. Christianity is a weird religion. We believe some very weird things. We we believe in a crucified God who rose from the dead, who got sucked up into heaven while everybody watched him. And he's coming back one day, tatted up on a white horse, king of kings, lord of lords, and a flame coming out of his mouth to rule the nations. We actually believe that stuff. That's weird. See, he's saying, I want you to be different. You should be different from non-Christians. You should be different from the religious folk. There ought to be something very different, Christian, between us and religious people, so much so that Jesus is going to say, guys, gals, 
unless your righteousness exceeds the most religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. You better be different. So, so now we get to Matthew chapter 5. And we're not going to dive quite yet into the sermon. We're going to kind of dance around it for one Sunday because I need you to kind of get acclimated so that when we dive in, you can see this is really what's going on. And what you're going to see, first of all, is a weird Savior. So start reading in Matthew chapter 5. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Okay, so what happened? If you go back up into Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus, it says, he's had this crazy, ridiculous day. He's becoming more and more popular. People are gathering around him. They want to be healed. He's preaching to them. I mean, his poll numbers are rising. And he sits down like a good rabbi would do. They would sit down. They would draw the people to them. And his disciples come, and he goes up on a mountain He goes up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them. So he opens his mouth, and out comes the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't doesn't open Scripture. He doesn't open the Bible. He does what we cannot do. When Jesus talks, Scripture comes out. In fact, go back to the very end, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. When Jesus had finished these things, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. Why were they so astonished? Because He was teaching them as one who had authority. In other words, within Himself. He wasn't looking to Gamaliel. He wasn't looking to some other rabbi and saying, well, they said or whatever. He's looking and saying, this all comes from me. I am so different. I am I'm a weird savior. You've never seen anybody like me, and I want you, I want you to be different. So he brings his disciples. I'm going to teach you guys because what happens is as my poll numbers are rising and everybody wants to be around me, the temptation is go, man, let's never see this end. See, you know what happens? You know what happens, Christians, when we get popular? You know what happens when we become that inside, kind of we're the, we're the brokers of power? We never want it to end. And we think this is, where, this is where the strength lies. This is what we should be after. And Jesus goes, come here, guys. I need to talk to you because you're going to get caught up in this whole popularity frenzy if you're not careful. And I don't want that to happen. And so I've got to tell you, here's what you should be like. And he begins to teach them. And he teaches them some wild things. He says the way up is down. He says the way to riches is poverty. He says the way to gladness is mourning. He just says some very weird things. So I just want to ask two questions and we'll be done. And the first question is this, is this sermon even relevant for us? I mean, this is the most popular sermon ever written, ever preached. More people have quoted, have borrowed from the Sermon on the Mount, yanked things out of context. Listen, I promise you between now and next November, you, if you are listening, will hear the Sermon on the Mount probably recited in some form, some something will be yanked out of context so that a politician can use it for their own ends. 
Because everybody thinks the Sermon on the Mount is just kind of this, these, these short little pithy sayings that, that, uh, that, that Christ kind of utters. It's sort of these, these proverbs, these fortune cookie statements that, you know, pyology, put them on the wall. And, and it does. Has some, I mean, it's quoted in Shakespeare. It's quoted in great literature. It's been used in movies. It's been used in popular songs. It's, it's everywhere. This is the most popular sermon ever preached. There's things in here you probably didn't realize. Oh, my goodness, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you just a few of them. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. That's from this. You'll read, hear about that in a few weeks. You're the light of the world, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You shall love your neighbor. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be the name. The, the Lord's prayer comes from this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. You cannot serve God in money. I could go on and on. I mean, this is just filled with all these like, oh, that comes from this. But is it relevant? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. It's incredibly relevant if you want to know what it means to actually be a Christian. See, you have to see this. The Sermon on the Mount is not a motivational speech. The Sermon on the Mount isn't God going, here's some kind of nice ideas that you might want to incorporate into your life. It'll just make your life better. No, he's saying this is what it means to be a Christian. And if you can line your life up here and line the Sermon on the Mount up here and you look and say there is no similarity, then he says you have reason to believe, gentlemen, ladies, all of us, that something is off, something's wrong. I'm not who I think I am. It's incredibly relevant if knowing whether you're a Christian is important to you. But is it possible? That's the other question. I mean, is a Sermon on the Mount even possible? See, there, there, there's sort of two extremes here. Some are going to go, yeah, of course it is. I mean, all that Jesus is doing is kind of giving us these proverbial sayings, and, and He's just saying, be a good person. Be a nice guy. Walk old ladies across the street. Share things with your friends. Be kind and generous. That's really all He's saying. And so if we try to be good, then sure, it's possible. And all I can say to people that would talk like that about the Sermon on the Mount is it's, it's apparent you've not read the Sermon on the Mount. And there's the other extreme that goes, I've read this thing. It's ridiculous. It's impossible. Why even try? I, I, I can't do this. This is, this is a higher standard than I can possibly live up to. And so they despair, and there's, there's no way that I can do this. Because here's the thing, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're reading it right, will crush you. Like, it will bring you to a place like, this, this feels so difficult. I'm not this guy. I'm not this gal. I, I can't do this on my own. And the Sermon on the Mount is screaming to you, exactly. But is Christ just toying with us? Is He just dangling this thing and saying, oh, you've got to live this way. Oh, but you can't. Ha, ha, you know, burn. No. What's it doing? 
It's pointing you. I mean, Jesus is going to look at his disciples in chapter 7, verse 11, and say, you there, you're evil. Well, that's not very encouraging. He's saying, you've got to know this. There's something intrinsically wrong with you. And the Sermon on the Mount will be utterly impossible unless you're born again. Unless something radical happens to you. I remember this, this, this Jewish ruler at one point named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and they're having this conversation. And, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you understand, if you're going to make it to the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? How, how does a man, a woman, enter back into his mother's, her mother's womb? And Jesus is like, you're a, you're a Jewish leader and you don't understand this. Nicodemus, do you not understand what the Old Testament has been telling you all along? You are incapable You are unrighteous. You have a heart of stone. And and listen to me, if you have a heart of stone, you're dead. And when Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, guess what that Greek word for dead means? It means dead. It means you're really dead. You're incapable of responding. So there has to be something external to you that comes and enlivens you and brings life and breathes life into your dead lungs and helps you so that we look at the Sermon on the Mount and go, I can't do this. And God's saying, you're right. I can. Jesus has. And if you'll receive this external righteousness that is outside of you, I will, I will make you alive with Christ. He's your only hope. And he will show you the way to happiness. And he will show you the way to blessedness. And he will show you how to make sense of your chaotic, crazy life. Because some of us would look at our lives and say, man, I've made a mess of this thing. And I have been listening to every voice out there saying, this is the way to be happy. This is where you find purpose. This is where you find meaning. Go chase money. Go chase power. Go chase fame. Have more sex partners. Experiment with your sexuality. Do all these things. You will find happiness there. And I keep searching and I keep trying and I can't do it. And Jesus is saying there going, here it is. Here it is. And if you'll come to me, I'll change you. Have you been born again? Have you? See, see listen to me. I'm, I'm concerned. I can't imagine walking through this life thinking I'm born again only to stand before God and Him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's terrifying. God doesn't want us to live in terror. Am I, am I not? Does He love me, loves me not? Loves me, loves me not? No, He wants you to know. 
He wants you to know. And so we look and say, has my heart been transformed? Are there new impulses? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And you know what that new creation looks like? It's not just, yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I believe that he's the son of God. You can't say that glibly. You can't just mutter those words. You can, but if they make no difference in your life, if you aren't different because of it, then then you have reason to wonder whether there's a reality in there that you think is there. And so over the next several months, we're going to listen to this weird sermon. And hear me, let it crush you. Let it, let it be something that you are constantly. Martin Luther was right. His first thesis when he nailed it to the Wittenberg door says all of life is repentance. All of life is having our mind changed by the Word of God and realizing, wait a second, I'm, I'm out of sync here. God help me. This isn't just me trying harder. Spirit of God, if you are alive in me, then change me. This is such a hope-filled sermon because if you are born again, the mess of your life can completely change. The values of your life can completely change. The affections of your heart can completely change. And some of you would say, I need that so bad. (laughs) And in fact... If you look at that and go, yeah, my life's fine, then this sermon isn't for you. Because next week, Jesus is going to say, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. If life is great for you, you don't need Jesus. You're like, you know what, that's, that's this Sermon on the Mount thing, that's, that's good. You know, it's, I'm, I'm just going to try to kind of live my life as a good life. I, I think I'm a pretty good person then you haven't been undone yet by the gospel. Because when you are, it will drop you to your knees. See, if the sermon, if, if you and I can't be born again, this sermon is impossible. If you and I don't need to be born again, all this sermon is is little proverbial statements, pithy advice for us to kind of follow maybe. But if we can, and we can, then it's possible. What would happen? What would happen, Foothill Church? What would happen, Christian, if every Christian would live the Sermon on the Mount? I think you'd see people turning into the church and going, I'm done looking. I found it. I found it. Here are people that represent my hopes and dreams. Here are people living differently. And listen to me, every revival in human history has come about when the people of God begin to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, let me live this, God. Let me believe this weird sermon from this weird Savior who says, if you want the kingdom of heaven, 
you must be born again. If you want forgiveness, then you need the cross. If you want to be righteous, you're not going to find it in your own. It's going to be a foreign righteousness that I give to you because of the perfection of my son, Jesus Christ. And if you'll believe in him, you'll put your faith in him, you will try, if you'll flee to him, he'll change your life. See, see, listen to me, no, no one, no one just decides to accept Jesus, invite Jesus into your heart. Jesus isn't standing out there wringing his hands, please, please invite me. Jesus is standing there as a supreme Savior. He is standing there saying, I am the only way. I am the only truth. And when you realize that, you, you won't just say, I invite you, Jesus. He's saying, come to me, Chris. Flee to me. Find refuge in me. You can't do this on your own. And you will fly to him. You will fly to him. Have you been born again? That's the message. And that's the only way this thing's going to be a reality for you. Let's pray.